Yeah, though I will say a, a big pet peeve of mine is when people call the pieces like horse or castle. <laughs> well, then, you know, they're easy to beat because I have well, them. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> that's right. Oh, fuck. Damn it. Sorry. I have a cut on my toe. I hit sometimes. Oh, yeah, it's good. Cool. Wait, you okay? What happened? Happy New Year, Shreeder. <laughs> Happy New Year, Chris. We're back. It seems like it's been a while. It has been a while. I mean, how was your first week or first two weeks of 2021? Did anything happen? <laughs> uh, not much, you know, just the same old, same old, right? There's nothing in the news or anything like that. America as usual. That's yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it is true that, that when, you're, when you're talking about centuries or, or, or even decades, um, you know, it doesn't necessarily start right on the decade or right on the century mark, you know? In many ways, the 20th century didn't start in 1900 or 1901. It started in, you know, say like 1918 or something like that. Sure. Um, so I think the same thing can we can apply the same <laughs> principle to to 2021, right? It doesn't really start on January 1st, 2021. We'll say that it, it'll start somewhere arbitrarily, shall we say, January 21st. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think the afternoon of the 20th. Okay, sure. Is <laughs> Let's be very precise. <laughs> As eventful and stressful and anxiety-inducing these times are, and maybe the last year has been, the last few weeks have been, as annoying and stressful as these are, the thing I'm really not looking forward to is having to explain this to little kids the rest of my life. Like, Grandpa Chris in his rocking chair is going to have to explain to the future generations... <laughs> What happened, why it happened, what it was like. <laughs> I think you're being very optimistic to to even assume that there will be future generations, but <laughs> that, that that there will be future generations, but sure, you know, I'll I'll I'll, yeah. I'll take you up on that. Um yeah, I I think if if there are you know, if 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 there are indeed future generations, I think mm-hmm. the craziness will just be ramping up. So I don't think we'll have yeah. any problem explaining to them how crazy 2020 was. Yeah. <laughs> They'll be there in this sort of like post-apocalyptic landscape, thinking that yeah. you know we were playing with chump change back then. I do think it is interesting what you were saying, how some, some decades or some eras, but let's just say decades, some decades have a delayed start culturally and some kind of start right on the mark. So an example, I think, would be the 60s going into the 70s. I think it was a night and day difference the year 1970 was very different than the year 1969 right 1970 yeah. the beatles broke up elton john releases your song his iconic album that launched him to to the album where elton john became elton john essentially right <laughs> mm-hmm. but when you look at say the 80s going into the 90s like the first few years of the 90s were kind of an 80s hangover <laughs> yeah yeah right like if you look at the style pop culture the fashion the music the early days of the 90s before the 90s kind of figured out what it wanted to be and became the, the era of the personal computer and sitcoms and stuff before that yeah the 90s didn't, the 90s was kind of lost and unsure of itself i think yeah e- even with politics you know you had the fall of the berlin wall in 1989 but the ussr mm-hmm. didn't break up until 1991 Right, so, right. So, you know, there, there's a little bit of a, you know, it's kind of the same the same sort of movement, sort of blood over for a year or two into the, into the next decade. 
Yeah, yeah, totally. And I feel like this decade hasn't really started yet. <laughs> no, no. Sort of like sort of like what we were saying at the end of the Christmas special. The, the, the Roaring Twenties are going to happen, but it's just going to be a year or two late. You know, Streeter, first episode of the year. I think we have some, some housekeeping that is due. Some exciting housekeeping items to bring up and talk about, actually. Yeah, for once, housekeeping is actually eventful. Um, <laughs> so uh, while we were gone over the, over the holiday break, um, we, we went through a little bit of a rebranding. And, Heck yeah. Um, yeah, and the, the way that's going to manifest itself is that, is that you probably have noticed by now that we have new artwork. No, no, no diss on the old artwork, um, but you know, the, the, new, the new one's pretty cool, I have to say. I love it. I love it so much. I mean, just to paint a little bit of the context <laughs> for those who are curious, <laughs> Shreeder and I, we kind of learned when we were going after, when we kind of learned when we were approaching the rebranding and the new artwork, that Shreeder and I had pretty different design aesthetic preferences. There's a design he thought was cool that I didn't really like. There's, there's a design I thought was really cool that Shreeder didn't really like. And so we were trying to even figure out where the middle ground was, almost kind of a best of both worlds or a compromise, which we kind of figured out was the wrong approach, right? Trying to like water down one of them to appeal to the other, just, you know, you know to scratch it, start something totally different. And mm-hmm. Shreeder gets the credit. Uh, he designed this artwork all himself. So, <laughs> so Shreeder's also a designer now. When you show me this, this new artwork over Slack, I loved it instantly. I was like, yes, this is it. This is perfect. <laughs> this is perfect. Well, thank you. I think I think calling me a designer is is giving me a bit too much credit, but but you know I'll take it. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah. But, so yeah, no. I, I mean, I, I, you know, just to to riff on that a little bit. I, I think in general that's it's a good um, good case study in how like compromise isn't necessarily the right path all the time. You know, mm-hmm. um, you don't necessarily want to water down both ideas. You want to just usually there's something that you, especially in something like design which is like open ended you know something artistic usually there's something that can encompass both both um things right. that you're trying to compromise you know towards you know the true definition of a compromise is that it leaves both sides unhappy <laughs> <laughs> yeah like look at brexit both sides of brexit now are pissed at what happened the pro and against cuz nobody's getting what they really wanted from either side just <laughs> yeah Though that might be less because it was a compromise and more because it was a bullshit idea to begin with. But you know, that's a whole different. <laughs> was, that's a whole different thing. Was, yeah. So, so, but anyway, yeah. Um, yeah. Do you mind taking us on a quick tour of the logo? Sure. The artwork. So yeah. you know, um, yeah, it 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 has the the sort of classic. You know, I say classic, but it's been like this since April. Um, it's classic to us. <laughs> classic to us, exactly. And it's classic to the listeners. <laughs> yes. It has the classic white on black, which I which I love. Um, mm-hmm. You know, as seen in in so many iconic designs, such as uh, ISIS. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but heck, New Zealand rugby. New Zealand. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. The, look the, the all blacks. Yeah. The iconic um, fern leaf. Yeah. Yeah, you you really saved my ass there. Um, I couldn't think of anything. I knew it was cool, but I couldn't think of a cool example. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, it 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 has the the classic white on black, and um, 
you know, before we had the ITL sort of just the initials and sort of like Tetris shapes, but um, you know, I, I think it would be it's nice to to actually see the the name of the of the of the podcast on the artwork and um, you know the the real like salient design element or whatever is is the the two pianos that sort of form the the north and south like borders. Um, yeah, you know, they're kind of like stylized keyboards, and uh, I think it's pretty cool. And, and there's there's a there's an ITL hidden. Um, yeah, right. There, so, I love that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, I I love that little Easter egg in the corner. Um, kind of like om a, I mean, we use the ITL initials in a lot of things, but mm-hmm. it's also kind of an homage to the original logo too. That was just the ITL. So this is just a a V two of the original concept and things. I yeah. really love um, I love the the impolite to listen. I love the kind of staggered uh, orientation of the of the words and and the font too. It it gives it almost a a James Bond feeling, sort of like 007, or I think the Casino Royale logo for the the what, not the original Casino Royale, but the 2006 or 2007 film. Yeah, it's kind of like that uh, diagonally oriented text which i think is super cool and super rad and i also love how the two pianos at the top and the bottom form they they almost create the sense of a of the logo looking like a film reel like it goes from left to right yeah so i i love that and film music is something we've talked about a bit on the podcast film music was also one of the things that kind of sparked our conversation and idea to actually start a podcast so uh, we both love talking about film music so there's that kind of thing in there as well and and it just looks cool i mean it looks awesome oh and also on on film reels uh typically the one of the great innovations of film technology was back in the early days of sound films they had a record or a wax cylinder that you'd have to sync up with the reel of film when you in the projection booth press play so that was, I mean, that's just asking for things to go wrong, right? <laughs> right. Not only do you have to press play at the same time for both of them, but what if the calibration's a bit off and the film reel spins a hundredth of a second too quickly or too slowly over the course of an hour film that, that expands and pretty soon your sound is going to be off. So one of the great innovations was they stored the sound information magnetically in the edges of the film, like on the sides. And that is where the piano keys are, if we imagine this being a film reel. So those who know their film technology, like the literal film technology, <laughs> would get that where the piano keys are is where music is and sound. I think one side was for sound effects, the other side was for the score and for music. So uh, there's, it's one of these logos that I love where you look into it and there's a few layers to explore and kind of kind of be tantalized by, uh, in addition to the coolness that's on the surface. Yeah, I, I mean, thanks. I love it. I can't take credit <laughs> for, the, for, the, for the film reel thing. I have no idea how film works, but, um, you know, I'll, I'll count that as a sort of serendipitous uh, design element that, that's cool. Yeah. No, that's awesome. So, so, yeah, so we're curious what you think. We hope people like the logo. We love it. We think it's pretty unique, too. Yeah, just yeah. just our taste. Um, yeah, it certainly and, pops when I'm scrolling through, you know, my podcast player. But yeah, but yeah, I mean, you know, feel free to reach out and, and let us know what you think. Um, I mean, we hope you like it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So um, next up on housekeeping is the new website. Mm-hmm. 
it's the same. It's still impolite to listen.com. Um, you know, on your end, uh, to, to, to the listener, it's not going to be, it's not going to be much different, but, um, you know, we, we, we did switch it over to, to Squarespace and, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know if you want to, if you want to say a few words about the, the new website. Sure. Yeah. We, we, um, we streamlined it a bit. We made it a bit more refined. Uh, it looks a lot cleaner. I think it's, mm-hmm. it does exactly what, what you want it to and nothing that you don't want it to. <laughs> Which on the internet is seldomly seen. <laughs> yeah, it looks pretty sick. Yeah, I'd say. I think I think yeah. it looks pretty cool. It looks pretty cool, and we we have a we have a infrequently asked questions page <laughs> now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and it's yeah, it's not much different from the old one, but it's there. You can listen to the episodes on your computer if you prefer to do it that way. And also on the website, we now have a support section. We have an account now with buymeacoffee.com, which is a really cool other variation on the Patreon sort of model or concept. I mean, what it entails is if you like our podcast and you want to give us a few bucks, you can go on there and buy us a coffee or two or three. You can donate to us $2 or $4 or $6. Uh, We really appreciate it. But I think we also want to say this with the subtext that feel no guilt and no pressure at all. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's no, there's no, um, there's certainly no pressure to, to, to pay up. Um, you know, right, right now it's not, it's not about the, the sort of money as much as it is. Um, you know, we just want to get a, a feel for, um, for what our listeners are thinking about the show. So, um, you know, if you, if you find it valuable enough to, to sort of pitch a coffee towards us, um, you know, you can do that there, and and while you're there, you can feel free to to sort of drop us a line and leave a note on um, any comments you have on the show, any um, any topics you want us to talk about. You know, um, yeah. as a as a supporter, we'll certainly value your opinion. You know, because if you care enough about the show to sort of put some money up for it, um, we should care enough about you to sort of listen to you. You know. Yeah. Um, oh, exactly. So yeah. Exactly. And with any crowdfunding sort of thing, it's um, the act matters so much more than the amount. <laughs> right. Right. So, it, so if you do want to support, don't feel bad that's only $2 or something. Yeah, that's totally cool. Um, and again, if money's tight, keep your money. You know, enjoy the podcast. Feel yeah. zero guilt. It's always going to be free. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And and you you know and if if you want to support but but um, but you can't you can always um, you know tell your friends about the show you know um, sort of you can tweet about it or Instagram about it whatever you can yeah. you can rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts you know there there are plenty of ways you can you can you can just reach out to us and say hi um, you know yeah. th- there are plenty of ways to support Absolutely. the show without without um, without giving us your hard earned cash so. Um, if, yeah. if money is tight, really don't worry about it. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And also with buymeacoffee.com, one of the reasons I like it, one of the reasons a lot of people like it is when you buy us a coffee for anything, it's just that. Hmm. You're just giving us a few bucks. There's no monthly subscription that you're signing up for where you're paying us like $5 a month or um, or sometimes they're set up where it's you give us $5 automatically when we put out a new episode or some YouTube channels do where with every new video you automatically donate five bucks. No, this is just a one-time. Just buy us a coffee, and if you 
continue to like us, you can buy us more coffees in the future. But it's it's really just a one-time transaction. And, and we accept Apple Pay too, so we can make it easy on your phone and things. So It's really like a sort of simpler version of Patreon. And, and I really appreciate that because I think, you know, as more people move their sort of businesses and their creative endeavors online, it's really starting to sort of pile up the number of like, you know, Patreons that you have to sign up for and the number of Substacks right. that you're sort of, you know, on the newsletter for. It's, it's, start, it's getting a bit, you know, like everyone, everyone and their mother has a, yeah. has a Patreon. So I, I do like this sort of simple, just one time, you know, one and done. And if you, you know, yeah, like you said, if you like it, you can always send more coffees, but it's simple and it's nice. I like it. We have the link as mentioned on our website, on our homepage, and we'll also put a link in the show notes if you just want to jump right out straight to it. And what is the and what is the link for for people who aren't gonna click on anything but just sort of are gonna type it in? It's www. If you want to be really old, <laughs> <laughs> like kids these days have no idea what that even stands yeah. for. <laughs> Yeah, www.buymeacoffee.com slash impolite. Awesome. Yeah, awesome. And needless to say, we greatly appreciate it. Indeed. So All right. I'm under the impression that you have some that you have some topics on board. I have some us. news for you. No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> so okay, so awesome. So I was thinking for for our inaugural. Um, oh, sh- should we release this on inauguration day? That'd be kind of. Huh? Yeah, I mean, we might end up doing that. Um, you know, we might that that might just end up happening um, serendipitously. But yeah. yeah. Well, anyway, so we were kind of thinking about topics for today and so one of the so there's been themes to 2020 that i think are going to carry over into 2021 just themes in our everyday lives like i i <laughs> we can all agree that 2020 was in many ways the year of the walk <laughs> everyone <laughs> at least in my life and all my friends here here where i live it's everyone just walking all the time because you can't it's the only thing to do when you go out just go on a nice walk or a hike maybe yeah so it's been the year of the walk. It's been the year of the movie night. It's been the year of the game night. It's been the year of the Zoom. One of the things, too, Shreeder, has been the year of chess. Hmm. All right. It has been the year of chess in so many ways, and which I have openly embraced. I, I used to play chess a lot as a kid. I was, I was part of the more elementary school chess team. Back in the days, back in the nineties, I still have my chess. I still have my chess handbook there, and and I think I was made captain of the chess team for a little bit, which basically meant I had to get there early to set up the chess boards. So <laughs> wow, that's that is good branding. So they treat yeah. you like an intern, but they call you a captain. <laughs> yeah, and I, I was eight years old, I think. Yeah, I was in third grade. So yeah. So anyway, I I played chess. I played chess a lot as a kid. And also in our apartment here, me and my roommates have had some epic chess tournaments going late into the night and stuff. So, so we were playing chess a lot right when quarantine started and stuff. And then the Queen's Gambit show on Netflix came out, which was a big craze and swept all across the world. And even even um, before that came out, chess had already been rising a lot or had, had already been becoming very popular, even more popular. 
around the world is just with quarantine chess is the perfect thing to do and people are streaming chess on twitch now it's it's a huge category on twitch since the beginning of last year so everyone's playing chess everyone's watching chess there's a netflix series on chess (laughs) uh so chess is on everyone's mind and I have always thought this, and this is what I really want to talk about, is I've always thought there's there'd been a huge, there's just a huge overlap between chess and music. There's just so many similarities. And in addition to that, there are so many musicians who are avid chess players and stuff. And I did a little bit of homework, so I, I have a, a list for us. So just, uh, just uh, kind of uh, berate you and... Drive home my point. Here are some, yeah, trivia segments and facts about musicians and chess. So, Leonard Bernstein was an avid chess player who always had a chess board in the green room of Carnegie Hall, the story is, and would play uh, usually before concerts, not after concerts, but usually before concerts. Hmm. Art Blakey, legendary jazz drummer, he, he was a very avid chess player, and he wrote a song called The Chess Players. Chris Bodie. Um, current jazz trumpet player. He's a he's a very big chess player. He's also on the board of FIDE and and the World Chess Federation. That's so, pretty cool. Um, uh, yeah, he's played against Gary Kasparov and such. Uh, yeah, so he's wow. he's big into chess. Um, Brahms was a very avid chess player and would play routinely against Schumann. So Johannes Brahms would play against Robert Schumann. Clifford Brown, legendary jazz trumpet player back in the bebop era. He he famously always said his only he he didn't he drank, drank a little bit but he didn't do any drugs like you know a lot of jazz players did and he famously said his only vice was chess. <laughs> John Cage, an American composer we have talked about, he he wrote a piano sonata called Chess Pieces and always had a magnetic chessboard he would carry around in his like inner coat pocket, and he um, he contributed a lot of money to like chess organizations. Was a very passionate chess player. Ray Charles, the pianist, he used chess to get over his heroin addiction, which I always thought was I always thought was really interesting. Mm-hmm. Frederick Chopin was a big chess player who, as a hobby, would make his own chess boards and chess pieces. Dizzy Gillespie was a really avid chess player and would always play with Billie Holiday when they were on tour together. Went Marcellus plays chess and he funds and puts on chess tournaments in New York. Felix Mendelssohn was a chess player, a very accomplished one. We've talked about Ennio Morricone, who was a um, legendary Italian film composer and just composer-composer, who he uh, was a very big chess player. He traveled and actually did chess tournaments and had a FIDE rating of above 2,000 for a while. He held Boris Spassky to a draw, famously. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's pretty amazing. GM, Grandmaster, and world champion Boris Spassky, yeah, he held to a draw. Charlie Parker played chess, same with Muzorsky. Sergei Prokofiev was a very strong chess player, and he famously beat Grandmaster and World Champion Jose Capablanca, who was a great Cuban chess player. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, and pictures of Prokofiev at his home piano, he usually and almost always had a chessboard on top of his piano uh, at, at home where he, he, he composed, and he would play chess stories to flesh out ideas of composition and stuff and kind of get his mind working in that. So, all right. So, <laughs> uh, and... I think you can get the gist because I built this list of like all this research I did, and that's just the first fifth of the list. It just keeps going for great musicians and composers who are also very, very big chess players and really into chess. Yeah, so, for sure. That's that's 
barely the tip of the iceberg. Right, right. I mean, so there's that. All right. So there's something going on here, Shooter. There's something going on between this overlap of chess and music. What's your take? What's your theory? How should we think about this? Well, we sort of talked about it a little bit in the Ennio Morricone episode that we did. We, um, we touched upon it then. Yeah, we, we, we touched upon it there, but we didn't really flesh out the the idea. And um, you know, obviously, I have I don't really know what's what's behind this. <laughs> you know, um, I, that's that's a little bit above my pay grade. Okay, but you know, I'm not sure that anyone does. Um, like the, the human mind is very complicated, but right. I think I think with 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 music, especially with classical music and, and jazz music, I'm not so certain about um, like more popular forms. Um, you know, it's not it's not necessarily uh, it's it's not going to be like super popular of me to say, but you know, some music is more academic than others. That's that's okay, fine. That, that's yeah. true, right? Um, so I, th- I think in the sort of more academic fields of classical and, and jazz, I think the kinds of people who flock to it are are not necessarily people who are um, at at their hearts p- people who are entertainers. I think they're more people who are closer to you know researchers or mathematicians or something like that. Um, th- there's something that's very mathematical about music, and there's something that's obviously mathematical about chess. Um, so I think it's it's that it's that sort of relationship to to maths that that I think makes um, makes so many composers and you know great musicians sort of in the orbit of of both of those things. Um, hmm. When you think about music theory, maybe even in our music school training or any music school training in in the Western world, at least, right? You have music theory training of tonal harmony and species counterpoint. Yeah, stop. I mean, when you're doing those exercises and analysis and studying and writing counterpoint, four-part counterpoint, three-part counterpoint, it's almost like playing a game of chess. I mean, you can almost feel the gears in your head turning in the way a chess, in the way they do when you're playing a game of chess and you're thinking ahead, you're thinking positionally, you're thinking strategy. Exactly. You know, you're exactly right. It's it's when you when you're when you're sort of especially when you're when you're doing counterpoint exercises there there's some element of of placement of the notes so that you are sort of positionally uh in a place to be to be sort of well off you know four or five chords down the line you know yeah. th- there's a sort of thinking um this this sort of like it, yeah it's exactly like you said it's 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 positional thinking when you're mm. when you're especially when you're doing you know just counterpoint exercises and um it's even more similar to to sort of solving chess problems ra- rather than even just yeah. playing chess with an opponent. You know, if you if you if you've ever solved chess, chess puzzles, problems, yeah. yeah, 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 sorry, yeah, chess puzzles, um, yeah, thing, which yeah. someone like Vladimir Nabokov was was a very great composer of chess puzzles, but not a very great oh. chess player himself. So I think that that may give us an insight into into what's going on there. Um, like that that gives us an insight into into how the mind is working when it's sort of solving these kinds of problems and it's a lot of the same um it's a lot of the same kind of maneuvers it's it's this weird thing where you know there's there's sort of like clusters of of fields and and sort of modes of thought that your mind is sort of basically doing the same thing like the, the motions of the mind 
are the same if they even if the content of of what's actually yeah. being thought of is different and i think right. that's what's happening here i think what your brain is doing on chess is is extremely similar to what your brain is doing on music um even though the, the they seem different but it's because you know they they're sort of different abstractions of of um of the same kind of data you know chess it's at its if you sort of abstract chess it isn't about you know the knight's move and the and the rook and stuff it's 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 the sort of placing of a certain kind of mathematics onto a grid um yeah. and and sort of through um looking at the sort of combinations and permutations of of like possible moves of certain um points on it um having your mind sort of do that kind of dance of um are they busting up a covid party i think they're busting up a covid party here or maybe some uh busting up some some riders at the capital <laughs> yeah oh yeah. wow yeah um, that's right i always forget madison's the capital of wisconsin yeah i know right me yeah, too yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you won't this week <laughs> <laughs> no that's for sure <laughs> i totally get what you're saying right it's like um like the medium is different but the the process is very similar to playing the violin versus playing a game of chess or something. Right? Yeah, um, and it's the same thing with with music. I mean, there's there's a there's a sort of a mode of understanding music that that is that is sort of removed from um, aesthetic considerations, and it's a sort of very um, analytic and mathematical understanding of music. To sort of riff off of what we were talking about last time. I think music is a much more academic subject than than people mm. give it credit for, you know. Yeah. So I think that that may be one of the things that people hit up against when they when they consider something like, why are so many musicians also chess players? Um, I think even in the question that betrays a sort of misunderstanding about what music is, you mm. know, it's not that it, music is actually much closer to mathematics or physics or chess or something like that. Than it is to see something like visual art or drama, you know. Sure. Um, the, with visual art, it's obviously it's extremely aesthetic, and, and they're obviously sort of mathematical visual artists, um, like uh, like Joseph Albers or something. But even they sure, sure. don't really, yeah. Um, and then something like drama has to do, you know, with with the human psyche, really. Like someone like Shakespeare, yeah. you know, he's the, he's arguably the greatest psychologist ever. But music, right. something like Bach, just right. doesn't operate in that same field. So you can just study a lot about music just on paper. Exactly. Right. I mean, just analyzing the score. You can. There's so much you can study and analyze there. Where drama, just analyzing a, a script or a play, that's only part of it, right? And same with visual art, you know. But just the instructions, not the product, just the instructions, the notes on the page, are. 80% of what music is, <laughs> I would say, right? Yeah, agreed, uh, if not more. Um, um, sure. And certainly you can have a relationship to music that is totally analytical, you know? Yeah. Um, even if there's more to be had, there's obviously an aesthetic sort of um, more immediately pleasurable aspect of music appreciation um, that's undeniable. And we have to tap into that when we perform. But one yeah. could live a sort of very rich musical life doing nothing but analyzing scores. I'm, I'm totally convinced of that. Yeah, um, I mean, isn't that what conductors kind of do? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, right, it's... Cla- I, I think Claudio Abbado famously went on Desert Island Discs 
And <laughs> he, he flaunted the entire structure of the program by saying that he wouldn't take any discs to the desert island. He would just take scores because he'd rather <laughs> read them. <laughs> and the host was like, come on, man, just you're on the show. Yeah. Can you just do the show? <laughs> play along, play along. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it's, it's interesting, right? Like, and, and then when you look at composers who were music theorists first, like Hector Berlioz is an example, right? He was a music theory guy. He was a music theorist. He did music theory competitions, which I think is hilarious. And we should bring back, <laughs> yeah. uh, like, where you have to write a fugue in like four hours, right? And, and stuff. Yeah. It has to obey all the right rules of counterpoint and, and music theory. And then, of course, in a lot of his, um, a lot of his, uh, uh, pieces, you know, his famous one, of course, is Symphony Fantastique, came out in 1830. If you've been to music school, you just, that's what, one of the dates you just know, right? <laughs> like, yeah. 1830, Symphony Fantastique. 1803 was Beethoven's Eroica Symphony, right? There's like a few dates that are just grilled into your memory. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so, but I mean, and then you see some of the fugues and music theory moments in Symphony Fantastique that are really interesting, and that's, in addition to uh, that symphony, I mean, that symphony is probably more famous for the colors and the birth of the modern orchestra and the brass section and the harp and the birth of the modern romantic symphony, I guess is what I'm saying. But at the foundation, it's there's some hardcore music theory going on there. And if you if you look at someone like Bach, um, you know near the end of his life he joined a a society that was like a musicological and mathematical society. Um, mm. It was a small group of composers who were dedicated to sort of plunging into the depths of you know the core of like what is music. And um, it's not an accident that they that they had in their society. It was made up of of composers, of, of musicologists, you know, musicians, composers, and um, and mathematicians. Interesting. Um, yeah. It's, it's uh, not... Do you do you know what it was called off the top of your head? I do. I do not know what it's top. What oh, it's, it's called fine. Off the top of my head, but I, I I just I just hope they met underground. Um, <laughs> just I hope they met like in the cellar or basement, like a, a true cult. <laughs> I think a little bit more boringly, they 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 just met in um, in coffee houses in Leipzig. But oh, okay. you know, uh, boo, thumbs I know. down. I know, right? I I think you know th- there's this there there's this sort of deep connection with music to to nature, you know, to to, and I don't mean that in the in the sort of um, wishy washy <laughs> way of like, you know, oh, it's it's, it's nature, but I I mean in in yeah. the actual in the in the yeah. in the sort of harmony of the spheres sense, you know, th- there's a there's a um, I think th- a way to say it is relation to the natural. Yes, but right. if, if you look at something like um, Messiaen's study study of of, of bird calls, say, mm, yeah, or yeah. other other studies that have been d- done since of other um, animals, um, uh, sort of calls and, and cries and stuff like that. Um, th- 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 there's actually been some some people who who sort of have notated it, and it ends up looking, it ends up looking a lot like 20th century music. Um, huh, interesting. And there's there's something there's something there's actually something analyzable about it, you know. Um, yeah. And um, I think I think that's sort of what we're we're stumbling upon here. You know, there's something 
there's something fundamental about the fifth, about the interval of the fifth and the interval of the octave. You know, there's, there's something that is as fundamental there um, as any arithmetic or sort of fundamental law of physics that you want to talk about, right? Um, and I think it's not a coincidence that all of the world's musical cultures tap into these intervals, you know? Yeah. And right. it's not a coincidence that, you know, animals do, like other animals do as well. Um, so there, there's this sort of, and that's not true of other arts, you know? I, I'm not trying to yeah. sort of shit on something like painting. No, but, no, no, no. But no, there's, I, you know, no <laughs> inherent relationship between the way that um, someone like Dali would paint to something like the, the painting of a blackbird, right? right. But there is like, this intrinsic connection between the music that humans make and the music that blackbirds make. Um, and that's weird. That is deeply weird. And the, and the link between that is mathematics. The fact that music is so related to math and so universal, as universal as math is, uh, I, I, I think that explains the universality of music, right? Every culture on the planet has two things, their own cuisine and their own music. The food one makes sense because you have to eat to live. So every culture will inevitably kind of come up with their own sort of food. The music one is different though, right? It's like, huh, is music just this innate thing in our world? In our, in, in, is it innate thing in humans, right? Is it, is it, it's as common as food for some reason, but you don't need music to live, right? But it's still there. On the contrary, I think you do. I mean, you know, that's that's fairly hippie-ish of me, but um, <laughs> but I think I think that's not like you know, it's not a coincidence, and and I think people tend to undervalue the the sort of fundamental role that music plays in their lives. Um, hmm. If I could circle back to chess real quick. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so one of the things, one of my theories about why chess and music has this huge overlap in chess players and and musicians. I think chess and music are both both mediums of human expression and creativity void of language. I think that's a really good point. Um, I think I think similar to I, I really like that you said it's it's a sort of vehicle for expression and and um, creativity because I think similar to what I was saying about how people underestimate the sort of mathematicality of music. I think people underestimate the, the sort of emotion and the, the, the sort of expression, the expressive nature of, of chess um, sure. and the, the creative nature of it. So I think yeah. that that's certainly true. And, 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 and yeah, um, like language, they are, they're sort of constrained arts, you know, chess and music hmm. in a way, again, in a way that other, arts are not um they like so language you know i'm not familiar with the i i I used to know these but i can't remember now the the sort of terms that linguists use you know the the sort of five that there's like five um terms that that are basically like um like binary on off you know things like like the position of your tongue or the position of your lips Uh, Um, you know like um uh and 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 between those five sort of on slash off um uh, binaries, you can basically account for every um, noise that the human mouth can can make, and sure. and all language can be analyzed as such. You know, um, mm-hmm. so something even something as um, expressive and creative as Shakespeare 
can be ultimately sort of put into um, a sort of mathematical like abstraction, you know? Yeah. And the same thing can happen. You can do the exact same thing with music. Arguably, the things that we read music off of, the, the score is, is exactly such a such a um, abstraction. And same with chess. You know, it's this it's this mm. um, it's this whole sort of universe of creative expression that has been contained within a um, an eight by eight lattice. <laughs> and then even yeah. even more than that, it is it is abstracted into into like chess notation. Yeah. Um, so I think I think that that that's like another aspect of it that you're you're onto something there where there are some some things that are um, that are sort of able to be abstracted like that and other things that are not and um, yeah yeah it's it's interesting yeah I never quite made that connection until now but yeah it's called chess notation <laughs> exactly yeah just just like music notation yeah and it's funny because of chess notation right I mean for those who maybe aren't aware um yeah i mean it's just the simple way of saying pawn to e4 then knight to, you, know, you just say the square in the piece but that's how you record a chess game mm-hmm. and because of chess notation chess notation goes back hundreds and hundreds of years so from the year 1500 we have the games that were yep. played <laughs> we know exactly what happened and we can recreate them and analyze them and still discover new things about them Right, and it's the same with music notation. Right, we have music notation from the, from fifteen hundred, and same thing. We can recreate it. We can analyze it. We can still we can still discover something new in it. Right, and and we can appreciate it and see it for its beauty. So there's a huge overlap there. Yeah, yeah, and I think because we have those because we have those games and because we we can study from them and learn from them in ways that are really similar to to the way that we sort of study scores um mm-hmm. I, I think i think the 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 sort of the the muscle that that one needs to to play chess is is well is well um trained in musicians and and mm-hmm. the muscle that one needs to 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 be a musician is is well trained by Playing chess, so I think that that's another reason for that overlap. You know, it's as simple as, um, again, going back to your mind is doing similar things. So, um, yeah. if you play chess when you're a kid and you pick up music, you're probably fairly likely to be a pretty good musician. And if you start, you know, if you, if you come at it from the musical angle and you take up chess and you sort of apply the same principles, you're probably going to end up being a fairly good chess player. So I think that's, you know, it's, it's a lo- that, that's why I think you see a lot more overlap between musicians and chess players than you do between something like, um, you know, musicians and Olympic athletes. I was going to say, yeah, like yeah. chess and sports. Yeah. Like no, no disrespect. I mean, of course you are both big, big tennis fans and stuff. Yeah. yeah. So it's just, that's more of a different game, uh, literally. But, yeah, but, uh, exactly. But, uh, Your but, mind yeah, is just yeah. doing something different. Um, exactly, or honestly, exactly. even even the overlap between musicians and um, and like visual artists, you know, they, no, there aren't sure. that many musicians who paint compared to musicians yeah. who play chess. Right. I can know. think of Tony Bennett. You know, <laughs> Does a, he paint? He, he's a really good painter, actually. Oh, he's always cool. painted. He signs all of his paintings by his real name, Tony Benedetto. Ah, oh. stage name. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, no, he smartly, I mean, his agent, when he was starting his career, suggested he shorten it to Tony Bennett so people could spell it and remember it and say it easier. But That's interesting. Um, Schoenberg yeah. famously has that self-portrait of, of himself. Oh, that's right. It's not that's very right. good, if I, if I may say. Um, you know. Yeah, interesting. But, but no, that, 
That's yeah. a really good point. That's a really good point. Yeah. And chess, right? So just like what, what you're doing with music, when you read music off a score, you're taking the literal and applying the figurative, right? You're taking the literal notes, the pitches, the tempo, the, I mean, even the tempo isn't always literal, but the notes usually are, right? And the mm-hmm. key and the rhythms, usually pretty literal, right? But then you're interpreting it, applying, you know, if you're a flute player or a violinist, right? You're applying your tone, your interpretation, your... You're, the, the, you're playing the art to it, I should say, right? The art aspect of music. And same in chess, right? There's the literal. There is how a pawn can move, how a pawn can't move, <laughs> right? There's like the literal part of it that's just fixed. That's not going to change. Just like the, the key of D major doesn't change. But you use that as, I think you said before, a vehicle, right? Or something. You you use that as as the as the palette, right? To To apply yourself to it and... Hopefully other people like it. (laughs) Yeah. And then, you know, if I may stray like a little bit further into sort of uncertain territory, you know, I can't help but wonder if if there's another aspect that's, that is, um, again, like a muscle that sort of worked um, well within us between chess and music, which is um, the sort of agonistic aspect of it. Um, Agonistic. It's... um, like the the sort of the the combative um, the combative sort of element in it, you know. Oh, interesting. Um, it isn't it isn't like I keep doing this comparison, but it isn't like when you you know you make a painting and there's a whole process of making the painting, but once you've made the painting, that's it, right? It's done. Yeah, it's done. Um, yeah. Same with writing a book or writing a poem or something like that. Right. But you know, with with chess and with music, there's this element of like there's this gladiatorial element, you know. <laughs> Not only do you have to study yeah. the the you know the games of the old chess masters and and know you know what you're actually doing, but when you get up, you know to to actually play a, a match with someone, you have to sort of stare them down. And there's this whole psychological element to it, right? This this competitive nature oh, to it. That's and true. Um, and music isn't competitive in the same way that you know you're not trying to destroy anyone when you're on stage. But right, right. there's this aspect that the music you know it only lives in your head until you get on stage and then there's actually um like a physicality to it right you actually have to sort of dig your feet into the ground and say like you know shit might happen in this performance but um but there's a sort of fortitude of of uh you have to be sort of aggressive maybe that's the right word um there's a reactionary element to it yes yeah i think right right and again like painting a painting isn't quite like that where yeah um classical music i mean jazz especially when you're improvising again i this is a opening to a whole conversation about improvisation <laughs> and classical music you used to have a lot of improvisation in it and throughout you know the past 200 250 years that's kind of been weeded out but but let's take jazz right mm-hmm. yeah i mean jazz is very uh, you can prepare you know the pieces that are i mean sometimes you don't even if you show up to a gig <laughs> but you know the songs that are going to be called you have your theory, your training, um, you have an idea of what you might play when it's your turn solo. But having been there myself, uh, there's so many times where I have an idea of what I'm going to play right, right before it's my turn to start improvising. And I usually change my mind like two seconds beforehand. <laughs> right. As you probably should, right? And I kind of live with the idea of like, oh, if I have an idea last minute, I'm going to go with that instead of what I prepared for because... Chances are it's a better one. It's actually reacting to what's going on around me, the kind of solo the sax player just played. Yeah. And I'm going to riff on that, right? And so chess is the same way, right? You have your preparation, all that, but you never know for sure what your opponent's going to do. <laughs> yeah. 
So yeah. there's all that. And then one, one more thing that, that separates yeah. um, the, this whole thing that I'm trying to maybe draw upon is, is this, this notion that, that um, maybe, to put it sort of pithily, um, chess is more of an art than people give it credit for and music is less of an art than people, people <laughs> give it credit for. Um, I see what you're going for, yeah. But, but and another thing that really brings them together is the peculiar phenomenon of the, of the prodigy, you know. Um, there are tons of musical prodigies. There are tons of chess prodigies. And there are tons of mathematical prodigies, you know. But how many, how many prodigies are there who are poets? You know, I can think of, I can think of Rambeau, and that's it, yeah. pretty much. Because, yeah. you know, the, the sort of more aesthetic arts, like painting or poetry or drama, you actually do need to live life. You, you, you <laughs> truly do need to live and observe and understand deeply and, and with a sort of wisdom that can only come with age. Again, I can only think of one prodigal poet. Yeah, I'm um, just trying to think. Yeah, like so, I mean, um, you know, but, but yeah. chess and music, you know, completely detached from the world. I know people say that there's an element of music that, you know, some of like Mahler's late symphonies, you know, they maybe contend with, with death in a way that okay. is, um, that is, uh, no, you know. sure. but the actual thing, the actual thing itself can be totally understood, completely devoid from life, um, from life itself. Yeah. You know, it's this thing that exists in a very um, precise uh, mode of understanding, you know, um, yeah. chess really, chess really lives within the chessboard. And music really lives yeah. in the in the score, or if there's not a score in the sort of the, you know, in the case of jazz, um, <laughs> y- y- you know what I'm trying to say, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's, 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 it's detached yeah. from life. So, yeah, I don't know it's if you have anything to riff right? off of that. I mean, it's um, it's funny, right? Because yeah, like the prodigy is an interesting word, right? It's like um, I, I mean, I do things overused. I, I think <laughs> we both agree. A lot of people call a lot of people prodigies. <laughs> but there are real prodigies out there too. Like one of the examples I can think of is one of my favorite trumpet players, classical trumpet players, Sergei Nikaryakov. I mean, he's like the definition of a prodigy. I believe he started playing trumpet when he was nine. He start, w- w- which is pretty standard in the brass world. You usually start when like you're nine or ten. I started when I was ten, right? Um, so yeah, so he started playing trumpet when he was nine, and like by the age of eleven, he was one of the best in the world. Like what? <laughs> like, <laughs> and i mean there's recordings of him when he's like 11 and 12 and yeah he is one of the best trumpet soloists in the entire world and it's just he was just wired to play trumpet his brain and and stuff uh yeah his brain was wired to play trumpet yeah um and and usually in cases like that i i tend to think his brain was i mean obviously um like i i tend to think maybe his brain was wired it could have been wired to play chess like I think there's there's a sort of wiring there that is similar across across these fields, and it happened that he pick, picked up trumpet and you know killed it. But um, right. yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, if you look at someone say Bobby Fischer, right? Still, still the only American chess world champion. But yeah, I mean, he was pretty much self-taught. I mean, it's funny because if you go on if you go on Wikipedia and look at the history of chess world champions and the chess world championship, starting in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, right? The champion is always it's Soviet, 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 just down the line, right? And then in 1972, Bobby Fischer, who was American, then Soviet, 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 Soviet. <laughs> but it's funny because Soviet chess players, I mean, right, they're, 
they're, I don't want to say engineered, but they're like bred to play chess, right? You know, just mm-hmm. how the Soviets produced, I mean, you could say some musicians as well, pianists and things, but like ballet dancers, right? They they would pick out kids from the age of five who were just going to be professional ballet dancers, right? And their whole education was tailored around that. Their whole life as a kid would be tailored around that, and they would become world-class ballet dancers. The same was with chess, right? They, they're a subset of the population they picked and decided would become great chess players. And so, so the Soviets had all these chess world champions, all these chess grandmasters. But Bobby Fischer, he was just a kid from Brooklyn <laughs> who taught himself, you know, and just bought a bunch of chess books. And I think at the time he became the youngest ever grandmaster at age 15. I think since, um, I think his name is Ali Jera. He's uh, Iranian. And I think he was 13 a handful of years ago when he became grandmaster. So he, I think, broke that record. Um, if I'm correct, but, but yeah, but Bobby Fischer at the time, that was unheard of. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, and he became, I mean, he, he was a prodigy chess player whose brain through not much external factors. He didn't, you know, he, he was not growing up around chess or anything. No, his brain was just kind of set up to naturally be good at that. And, yeah. And of course he worked hard to, to become the best, but he had that foundation already there. <laughs> right. Right. And of course, you know, you hear stories of people like, um, like Erich Wolfgang Korngold, who we talked about yeah, in the yeah. film music episode, you know, where he would be like a brilliant composer. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant composer. composer I mean, yeah. And he would be like an 11 year old kid or something and go hear a Strauss opera for the first time and come home and be able to play through it from memory on the piano. You know, this is, this is, that's that kind of sort of peculiar mutation of the brain. And I mean that in the sort of best sense of the word. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, you see examples of that cropping up, you know, often with, with mathematics and music and, and chess and stuff. You, you really don't see it with, with other right. arts because just, again, you can't, you do need to live life to, to, to paint well. And you do, you know, to paint, yeah. you know, really, truly well. And, and certainly to write poetry or drama, you know, that's... Sure, yeah, yeah. that's very well put. And, um, and maybe in... One last, I mean, we'll see. But the other thing about chess and music that I think is really interesting is the inherent beauty in just the thing itself. Mm. Like the beauty in the concept of music, just how beautiful music can just be on the paper, right? And we've all had that moment where we were studying a score to a Tchaikovsky ballet or something, and we just see, uh, and you're able to tell from the paper if you know your music theory and stuff, right? You can just see like this, this D minor chord here is a stroke of genius. And that is beautiful, right? It's just like, wow, no other composer would have thought this, but Tchaikovsky did, right? And yeah. and same with chess. There's a beauty in just it itself, you know, that's not artistic, right? It's just in the fundamental nature, the physical, the physics phenomenon, the mathematical nature of it. There's just an inherent beauty to it. Like the thing I love with chess is how many possible chess game combinations there are. Mm-hmm. It's an absurd number. It's not infinite, right? We know that. There's, de- there's definitely a finite number, but it is, it's been studied and agreed upon amongst mathematicians and stuff that there are more chess game combinations. There are more possible different chess games than there are particles in the observable universe, <laughs> yeah. which is a fact that just sounds wrong, right? Right. But it can break like your your 
computational understanding of the universe, that fact. I mean, that just like, your brain just can't comprehend that, right? right there are more right. chess game combinations than particles in the observable universe, right? I don't think computers have actually calculated. They know it's bigger than X number, but they don't actually know what the number is. So it's this huge problem that computers are can't, you know, can't really even calculate. And dude, it's an eight by eight board <laughs> with 32 pieces. <laughs> That's all it is. Yeah. <laughs> right? That's all it is. And and um, in the same notion, music, in Western music at least, right? It's just 12 different notes before you repeat the octaves. So you have 12 notes to choose from, really. And, you know, look at how much music has been written. And we're not going to run out of new music, right? right? It's right. just that the number of possible combinations and things, are, it's, it's just so astronomically huge, literally astronomical, <laughs> that, that that's not going to be a problem. And they both have that in common. And because of that, um, you know, there's, we're sort of stumbling upon two things here. One is the actual sort of inherent similarities between music and chess. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, why might it be that so many people who are um, musicians are also, they also have an affinity for chess? You know, um, those are two related but separate questions. Sure. sure. Um, and to answer, to, to like yet another answer for the latter one might have to do with what you were just saying, which is that, you know, there's so many, just the, 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 the possibilities are, are, you know, literally endless. So... Um, you know, one one skill that you have to really hone if you're going to be any good at chess or music um, is to be able to to sort of process and and make sense of, and then even sort of turn around and be expressive with really large amounts of data, um, like mm-hmm. raw data that is that you can just sort of look at and just say, okay, this is what I need to do with it. You know, um, yeah. that's like a that's a skill that's that's not normal. That's not a skill that you huh. use in your daily life. And if someone had never studied music or studied chess or, or maybe even math, um, it's not clear that they would have that skill. It's not clear that that's a pretty. It's not. It's not even clear that that's a really useful skill to have in terms of your day to day survival. Um, in right. fact, it may have. It might have. You know, drawn. Uh, it, it may. Have, it may have made a fair amount of people go mad. You know, th- that that's another similarity yeah. we should look at between um, musicians and jazz players and people who went yeah. insane. You know, and schizophreniacs, but. Um, but but yeah yeah I mean I think I think that's another reason why you see these these um, you know it, it's 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 basically it's it's a it's a related skill set at the end of the day that's that's what it is yeah so you know it's no yeah. surprise that you're going to that you're going to see a lot of overlap between um, people yeah. who are very good at one thing or another yeah so yeah I mean call me crazy but I actually find chess um, I actually find it pretty relaxing yeah playing it you know I I mean I I play before bed a lot of times just on my phone Hmm. um yeah it's uh how should i say it's like when you're playing a concert or something you know when you're just in the zone right where you're so focused on one thing the thing that's right in front of you that everything else in the world for 20 minutes just doesn't matter you're just not even even remotely thinking about it you're just 100 percent focused on one thing and there are no distractions because your mind isn't even able to take in a distraction if there was one. So by definition, there isn't any. Yeah. There aren't any. And chess is kind of the same way, right? It's just when I'm playing, I'm just like, ah, I'm just so focused on one thing. <laughs> yeah. And it's oddly zen-like, if I, if I dare say. No, that, that's a good point, actually. I can, I, can, 
I can relate. It's, it's this interesting thing of when I, when I sometimes hear writers talking about the sort of craft of writing, um, you know, like a sort of perennial problem is like, how do you get into a flow state when you're writing at your desk, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's a yeah. good question. I have no idea how people do that. But when you're in the middle of, when, you're, when you find yourself, when, you know, so, as, as often happens, you find yourself in the middle of a concert hall with how many eyes trained on you and you, you have your mm-hmm. instrument in your hand and you're expected to make some noise, that you're, you're sort of induced into a flow state. You can't not, yeah. you can't be in the middle of your piece being like, I wonder what I'm going to have for dinner. Cause, right, right, you know, right. <laughs> um, you just have to be in it. So, and uh, ch- chess is kind of the same way. If you find yourself sort of in, in, at war with, some, with, with another mind, you know, you're not, yeah. you're not it's, it's, a, it's a good way to sort of shock yourself into, into focusing on the present moment. Right. And in, in, in a way, I mean, in a way, I almost think you don't even play if you when you play chess, you're not playing against your opponent. You're playing against the game of chess. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's what you're focused on. Yeah. Right. And yeah, just in music, it's like you're it, it's not about you. It's not about your instrument. It's not about the audience. It's not about the performance. It's about the music. <laughs> yeah. All right, so Shreeder, I'm gonna send you a picture on Slack right now, and I'm curious what you think of this. There's a lot going on in this, but this is a, a concert program I saw on a documentary, so I like paused it and took a screen grab of it. But I'm gonna send it to you, and why don't you just describe for all of us what, what you're seeing? Okay, sounds good. So I'm looking at a, a so I'm looking at a, a poster, um, it has, a sort of portrait and profile of Gustav Mahler. And it says the Philharmonic Society of New York, Gustav Mahler, conductor. Mm -hmm. Um, Something about management. Uh, (laughs) 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 The suits always have to get their names on the program, don't they? (laughs) Yeah. Uh I, I will not do the honor of uh, of reading out this particular suit's name, though I'm sure he is a very eminent suit. Um, yeah, well, I mean, needless to say, we'll be putting this in the show notes if anyone wants to look at it as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but... It says, next Sunday concert, Sunday afternoon, November 27th at 3 o'clock. Mm-hmm. Um, Mr. Xavier Schwarenka, soloist? Yeah. Is that right? I don't recognize who, um, that name either, but... And and they're they're playing Scheherazade by Rimsky Korsakov, Concerto Number no. Four mm-hmm. in F Minor by the soloist Shorenka, and Espana mm-hmm. by um, by Emmanuel Chabré, mm-hmm. who is a French composer. Um, yep, fairly charming French composer. If I think a little bit less known outside of France. Yeah. But, oh, indeed. Yeah. So, what's your take on this? On this, because it's Gustav. It's it's an. I guess it's not actually a program. It's an ad, like a paper. I guess, like a newspaper. But right. it's. Um, uh, I love how this is Gustav Mahler conducting the New York Philharmonic. You know, kicking off a concert program with Scheherazade by Rimsky-Korsakov. <laughs> and when I paused and saw this in the documentary, I I, I just laughed because just the thought of Mahler conducting Scheherazade. <laughs> Yeah, I just find that funny, and I can't like totally explain why. Um, but I mean, for those who are not aware, Scheherazade is a great piece of music by Russian composer Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov, who 
composed a lot of great Russian late Romantic works, and Scheherazade is one one of his um, more more well known. Um, um, but yeah, it's it's just funny Mahler in the music world. We think of him as a composer, and he thought of himself sort of, I guess, as a composer and things. And and, and yeah, he's remembered as a composer, but he was a prolific conductor too. And just the thought of him conducting music. That's not his. I just think it's hilarious. In the United States, you know, this is like from 1909, I think. Yeah, his his music really took a took a long time to be really accepted. You know, right now it's mm-hmm. it's considered ubiquitous. You know, there's yeah, no, there's really yeah. no problem with Mahler, but but yeah. there was a problem with him for for a long time in 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 both America and in Europe. Um, but to to sort of um, just a, a little bit broader yeah. to begin with. Yeah. You know, yeah. I find I find there's I find something to be quite charming about about looking at old advertisements and programs and stuff like that. Um, things with with people who are contemporaneous to 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 um, their work, and now we look at their work and it's sort of totally different light. Um, mm-hmm. right. You can only get that with with old things. You know, um, as you know, as you know, um, you know, we recently got a record player, and and there's a record, there's a used record store down the street. And one of the, one of the sort of little gems that I found was a record of the songs of um, Samuel Barber and Ned Warham. Mm-hmm. And, um, and on piano, um, it's, 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 um, it's Poulenc. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, playing piano. Yeah. So it's, a, it's another one of these things where... <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, that's you know. hilarious. Yeah. Who's now known as a great French composer, but... Exactly. Um, right, but uh, but I you mean, know, the, it reminds the, me of the notes for the movie West Side Story. John Williams is playing piano in the exactly, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, yeah. the, the 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 life of a musician is 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 varied, and and when when you know when we die, we'll be remembered. Hopefully, for if we're lucky, we'll be remembered yeah. for like one thing. You know. Yeah. Um, there aren't many people who get the sort of honor that someone like Leonard Bernstein has to be remembered as a composer and a conductor um, right. and a pianist. You know, that's that's yeah. really and rare. an educator. And, yeah. And, yeah. But yeah. but most people are all of those things to some degree. You know, no, most fair. most pianists, you know, or certainly most composers also conduct a little bit. A lot of them play piano. Um, it's it's really it's quite oh, common. Um, and and. And we see these sort of contemporaneous notices where where um, we see them sort of in the, you know it seems like a snapshot of Mahler in his in his in his quotidian existence you know right, not Mahler right. the sort of meditator upon death the composer of the Ninth Symphony but Mahler yeah. the man who you know had to pay the bills as well <laughs> right right he's conducting like a fucking matinee here. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's, it's a Sunday afternoon, three o'clock concert <laughs> on November twenty seventh. So you know it's a few days after Black Friday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh wow, interesting. Yeah, no, it's funny, and um, it's funny you brought up Bernstein because that's one of the things I always think it's super interesting. Um, like composers' relationships with other composers, mm-hmm. musicians' relationships with composers, and all you know all that stuff, right? Because. Bernstein, you could definitely make the case he's pretty single-handedly, or at least played a huge role in the emergence of Mahler as a composer in our perception of Mahler, right? 
Mahler symphonies were not played very often, if at all, before Bernstein really fell in love with the music and would record it and perform it with the New York Phil. And Mahler had already been dead for a little bit of time then, so maybe that buffer was needed. I'm, I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, and then, and then I mean, nowadays, all the great orchestras of the world, I mean, every season, back when orchestra seasons were happening <laughs> pre-COVID. But uh, yeah, I mean, every season, I mean, Mahler symphonies usually sell out the concert hall. But Bernstein, you know, adored the music of Mahler and said, no, like, audiences need to hear this. And it was music pretty unknown and rarely studied or performed before. And I, I like to think, too, Bernstein really felt a connection to Mahler, right? Because Bernstein was also a conductor that was composing on the side, but his day job was a conductor, right? And that's what he was really known for. Um, but then you can look back to, like, Mendelssohn is arguably the reason we even know the music of Bach, mm-hmm. uh, right? I mean, Bach was, it was viewed as academic music, like music you would study, right? And use as maybe etudes, but you wouldn't perform it. But Mendelssohn was entranced and fell in love with all the music of Bach and said, no, everyone needs to hear this. I will perform it. I will go out there and make people listen to this. So I thought the, yeah. that relationship is always kind of funny. And, um, and there's something definitely going on with that when you see this <laughs> this newspaper ad for a concert of Russian and French music <laughs> conducted by Gustav Mahler, you know, German composer. And yeah, this, I think it was around the year like 1909 or 1910 in New York. Yeah, on the on the you know the the Bach thing is interesting because w- with Mahler he was seen as he was seen as too ahead of his time. You know, oh, okay. too 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 modern. And with Bach, he was he was um, he was too old fashioned. You know, he, even even in his own time, he was thought of as old fashioned, and and his yeah. sons were much more popular than, than he was. So yeah, it took. I think Mendelssohn found um, a score of the Saint Matthew Passion in the Dresden Library or something. Oh, is that um, what it was? Yeah, okay. and and that sort of sparked, and he fell in love with it, and that sort of sparked the sort of first great Bach revival. Interesting. Um, interesting. So, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I think with with people like with people like Bernstein, you know, I, I almost wonder how much of it is that you you sort of have to you have to invent your predecessors in a way, you know. When you <laughs> if you yeah. if you think about your own if you think about your own sort of place in, in artistic history and and your own posterity, um you know, no one, it's a cliche, but no, no man is an island. And, and there is this thing that um, Harold Bloom calls the, the anxiety of influence. Um, you know, at, at once you have, you have this need to be new and fresh and individual and, and completely new. But yeah. um, there's no doubt that you're being, that you're being um, heavily influenced by certain people. Um, right. So the sort of, there's, there's, there's a sort of, thesis that the that all of artistic um, invention is sort of born out of this anxiety of of having to sort of invent your predecessors and i think there's definitely some of that in and in, in the sort of relationship between bernstein and mahler because um, he was trying to pave this way that that was not well paved except for mahler you know it, and, this way and, being the dual life of conductor and composer. And yeah. Being known for both, right? Yeah. yeah. And and he, yeah. I think Bernstein must have thought in some way idealistically about Mahler's life. Because yeah, yeah. here was a man, because with Mahler, you know, 
here was a man who, who was primarily a conductor, primarily seen as a conductor and worked as a conductor, um, and was not that prolific. He has how many pieces? 15, maybe 20? Well, he has nine completed symphonies, right? Yeah. And he, he never finished the 10th except for... He finished the shorthand right. piano score for the 10th, and he finished orchestrating the first movement of the 10th, which is beautiful. That's one of my favorite pieces of music ever. Same. Um, Same. And rarely, not rarely, it, it's, yeah, it, it's not played very often. It's, it's not, not played very it's often. It's not played as often as it should be, yeah. And he has he has Das Lied von der Erde, which is it almost counts as a symphony. Yeah, yeah, Song of the Earth, right? Das yeah. Von der Erde. Um, and then four song cycles. Yeah. So how many songs is that total? I mean, it's not. You could fit all this on like you know a small bookshelf. Like this, yeah. this is very. This is not a whole. You could fit it all on you know on on your desk very easily. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's not that many pieces. <laughs> yeah, um, because because again, his life was his life was conducting. Um, his, certainly his livelihood was conducting. Um, yeah, and I think, yeah. and I think Bernstein saw that and, and saw the sort of obvious posterity of Mahler's music as an ideal, yeah. you know, and I, I wonder how much of it was his, his also thinking, you know, if, if Mahler could be, could live the life that he lived and be remembered primarily as a composer of some small amount of works, you know, maybe that could be true of me as well. Um, yeah. you know. Uh, I, I think he really he really felt a sort of um, affinity to to Mahler in that way, and you know it's maybe too early to tell yet what what the state of Bernstein's posterity will be. You know, hi- history will judge. It it's it's interesting that you know we are now almost I think about thirty years removed from his from yeah, Bernstein's I death. I think it was nineteen ninety. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm still not sure what we will remember him mostly for you know, a hundred yeah, years down the line, right. whether he will be remembered as a conductor or a composer. It's not yeah. clear. Whereas with Mahler, it has become very clear. He, he has taken his ranks among the... We know him those, as a composer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And Mahler, I mean, his life is just fascinating to follow because he was a conductor, right? Was it in Budapest? He was conductor of the opera there. And, and I know he was conductor of the Vienna opera mm-hmm. at one point. And then he became music director and conductor of the New York Philharmonic, which is... I still think that's hilarious. <laughs> Just, yeah, <laughs> um, it's almost like when when you learn or hear that Tchaikovsky wrote most of the Nutcracker while living in New York. <laughs> right. It just it just doesn't feel right or sound right, but it's it's true. <laughs> yeah, or or when you're reading, you know, like a Victorian novel, or you, you know, you, when you're reading something like Sherlock Holmes and they mention America, and you and you're like, you know, th- this doesn't feel like it should be contemporaneous, but but it is. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, and it's funny, this program he's conducting, too, because, I mean, the thing that really sticks out to me, obviously, is uh, Scheherazade by Rimsky-Korsakov, because that's a little Mahlerian, if I could say. I mean, it's a grand orchestral symphony for a big orchestra, which is how Mahler wrote his symphonies. You know, they'd, a bunch of brass, a huge string section, tons of basses, tons of percussion, right? Um, what do you think of the piece Scheherazade? I don't like it. You know, okay, because I I love it. It's, it's one yeah. of my favorites. I I'm not surprised you don't like it. <laughs> oh really? Why is that? Yeah, I don't know. It just seems like very unstreeter. It, it's a very romantic era piece, which is not 
your cup of tea. Right. I, I know. Um, I, I love Shahrazad. I. It's funny if people listen to Shahrazad. I think a lot of film composers go in and grab elements from Shahrazad when they need certain aesthetics. Mm-hmm. So the composer for the st- score of Pirates of the Caribbean, the movie, who was not Hans Zimmer, by the way. Everyone thinks Hans Zimmer composed that score. He did not. Who did? He was a producer. Oh, okay. Um, he was a, a producer, and I think he may have like composed Hans. If we're wrong. I mean, please, please reach out and, and correct us. I, I'm so sorry. Yeah, you can, you can contact us through um, impolitelisten.com. And, you know, while you're at it, um, buymeacoffee.com slash impolite. You know, yeah. <laughs> we'll listen to you then. Yeah. Composer, I just want to make sure it's Klaus. I just want to make sure I'm pronouncing his last name. He's German. It's Klaus, Klaus Badelt, I believe his hmm. name is. I mean, I, I think I'm saying that right. I mean, in German, I just err on the side of pronouncing everything you see on my French. <laughs> <laughs> so Klaus Badelt, I, I think is how you say his name, but he was at least the main composer. I think it was a score that had a few composers working on it, but interesting. anyway, but Hans Zimmer is the name and don't get me wrong. I love Hans Zimmer. I, he's composed some miraculous, really great music. Um, the score for Lion King is one of my favorite scores ever. Mm-hmm. Um, not the songs by Elton John, which are great, but the actual orchestral score for Lion King so great so great and no one thinks of that when they think of like Hans Zimmer's great scores but it's right it's, yeah it's there Lion King was also the first movie I saw in a the movie theater so maybe I don't know I can really thank Hans for my passion of music I, yeah <laughs> anyways okay <laughs> um but yeah so in the score for Pirates of the Caribbean there's definitely some some Scheherazade moments um yeah so like here's here's a clip from Scheherazade <laughs> And here's a clip from Pirates of the Caribbean. There's definitely some elements there, and it kind of makes sense, because Scheherazade, you probably know this better than me, it's about the tale of Sinbad's ship, is that right? About the, the folk tale of... I mean, Scheherazade is the story of, of the 1001 Arabian Nights. Um... You know, the, the, um, there, there was the, the sultan who, who, would, um, who would marry a, a young woman and then have her for the night and then have her murdered um, the, next, oh. the next day, you know, and, and keep this cycle going. And, and Shahrazad is this, is this woman who, um, who stayed his hand by telling him a, you know, a gripping tale. That um, that he that she it's a tale that she um, a yarn that she spun for for a thousand and one nights as a sort of stay of execution. Um, so that's oh, that's gotcha. it's a story of stories. Um, gotcha. But ah, interesting. Okay, yeah, I I remember reading that in a concert program somewhere. I I forgot it though. <laughs> like yeah. <laughs> but but one of the stories is is of Sinbad and um, okay yeah yeah and so I mean it. So it makes sense. I mean, yeah, part of it is, you know, uh, one, one of the movements, so-called, it's not broken up into strict movements. It's just a straight through piece, but there are sections that are more or less movements. And one of them is, yeah, about Sinbad ship and stuff. So, you know, I can see like the pirate yeah. connections, why they why they dive into this piece to get some stuff. Certainly. And it's, it's, a, it's, it's exquisitely orchestrated. I mean, Rimsky-Korsakov is... is Second to not yeah. maybe Tchaikovsky. Second to maybe only Tchaikovsky in his 
or Mahler himself. His, <laughs> or Mahler himself, yeah, in his yeah. skill in, in orchestrating. Um, yeah. I, I really think of Scheherazade as a sort of counterpart to something like Bolero. You know, it is a, it is a study in orchestration to me. It is a... Mm, because it's, it's a lot of the same sort of thematic material reworked in slightly different orchestrations, slightly different sort of moods. Um, in that in that sense, it's a it's a sort of film composer's dream. You know, every if you yeah, want to compose true. for a film, you have to have to study Scheherazade because um, it, again, it's a case study in how to take the same germ and um, express it in sort of a million different moods just by sort of slightly varying the orchestration here or there. That's the bread and butter. So, of the, so what? The, so which instrument plays the melody? Yeah. Just to, to, to walk through some of our listeners that might not know what orchestration means but yeah like why you choose the oboe to play the melody this time or the brass or french horns to play the melody over here and at what tempo you play the melody yeah i mean right just kind of exactly you say having having this one germ just kind of grow and expand and yeah and 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 that is and that's of course the sort of bread and butter of film composing you know that's exactly that's so much of what film composing is it's like this very practical how do i evoke this mood out of a theme that has already been expressed but exactly yeah um but uh, you know I, I i see what you're saying in the sort of the the grand scope of it and the, the sort of grand orchestration in the way that it's similar to Mahler. but i really don't think that they're very similar at all because you know Mahler he he famously had this principle that he wanted his symphonies to be like life they he wanted his symphonies to contain yeah. everything and and they yeah. do you know they contain mm-hmm. um these passages of, of pure romance and, and passages of nothing but, you know, um, playful scherzos and meditations upon yeah. death and silence um, and, and war and, and, you know, yeah. everything. In, 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 that, in, in that way, you know, they, they are really, the scope of the, the orchestration is, is similar, but the, the scope of, of, of life that is expressed in, in a sort of typical Mahler symphony versus um, the slice of life that is um, expressed in, in Scheherazade. It doesn't really seem comparable to me. No, but, sure. I mean, Scheherazade is, is an adventure tale. I mean, literally, I guess it is too. But, sure. but the piece kind of sounds like one, right? And yes. Building off the film composer part of it, yeah. Uh, James Horner definitely used uh, Scheherazade for some inspiration for his score for uh, The Mask of Zorro, or the Zorro films too. He composed after hmm. that too. There's some very... Shahrazadi <laughs> orchestration and and things um, in in the Zorro film score, like this clip from Shahrazadi. And then the way James Horner kind of wrote part of the score for Zorro. There's definitely an overlap there, and it, and but you hardly find that surprising, right? It's like, oh yeah, I guess yeah. Herzog would find itself into Zorro. 
Of course, yeah. There's a sort of there's this swashbuckling nature to it. I'm just gonna say, yeah, it is a case study and a showcase of like how to use the orchestra itself as an instrument. You're exactly. Saying about film scoring, right? Yeah. And I always kind of like Scheherazade how it's also a little bit of a tour around the orchestra. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it just showcases a lot of players and musicians in the orchestra that usually don't get a chance to play a solo and stuff. But there's bassoon solos. There's obviously a very major violin solo. There's there's the, the flute has a few moments of glory and time to shine. So I, I always kind of enjoyed playing it. I'll say yes, that. And yeah. yeah. It yeah. is really fun to play. Um, that's for sure. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't mean to, when I said I didn't like it, I don't mean to just, you know, throw it in the sort of dumpster. <laughs> um, it is, it is a highly competent piece of music and it's really fun to play. And it's really fun to listen to in, sort of snippets you know it's like you said it's sort of divided into four you know quote-unquote movements um Mm -hmm. and i would happily listen to any one of those at any given time but the actual you know it's the the thought of sitting down and listening to the entire thing for what how it goes on for maybe 45 minutes it's Um, it's close to an hour depending on the recording yeah 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 it's close to an Um, hour you know that's uh it's not my cup of tea, but it is it is a piece that is absolutely necessary to study for what you can gain from it. Um, and it's yeah. really fun to listen to in, in sort of like uh, in sort of smaller snippets. You know, I, I'm not sure if it's even intended to be listened to from front to back, but, you know, it has in common there something something like the, you know, the classic sort of swashbuckling novels. Something like mm. the Count of Monte Cristo. The, something like the Count of Monte Cristo comes to mind. Um, you know, I've read that book maybe front to back, maybe twice, in my entire life. But to me, a book like that is not meant to be read front to back. It's mm. you dip into it for the sort of moments of of adventure you know contained within. There are various scenes that sort of stick out, and it's fun to sort of dip into them and and read them and sort of enjoy it and put it away. You know, it's not. It's not the sort yeah. of same kind of narrative that that you get taken through in in something like, um, you know, Ulysses or or The Great Gatsby. You know, something that that sure, demands sure. to be read from from cover to cover. You know, and not not merely dipped into. So. No, I see. I see. No, th- th- yeah. It. It's an ad- it's like an adventure book. Yeah, it's yeah. like it, it's like it's it's an adventure piece of music, and it's um. It's a, it's a fun ride. Yeah, yeah. It's fun to play. It's fun to listen to. Um, there's some really fun recordings of it on YouTube, like that one with the with the what's the orchestra and uh, I'm gonna pronounce the city wrong. It's in northern Spain. Oh, is, is it in Galicia? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Galicia. Galicia, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're a phenomenal orchestra too. And what's interesting is that orchestra has kind of become almost like a New World symphony, like the New World symphony in Miami here in the United States. But in northern Spain, Iglesia, it's a lot of the players that are playing in that orchestra eventually go on to play in the Berlin Philharmonic or the New York Philharmonic and stuff. I know some of the horn players now play in the Royal Concertgebouw in um, Amsterdam. Some of the brass players, I think, went on to the London Symphony Orchestra. So a lot of them... Yeah. So because that they play with like an awesome energy, every performance they do, every recording they do, they really just go at it mm-hmm. and stuff. <laughs> They're not sort of jaded yet. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But that one performance with the conductor with the giant Santa Claus beard. <laughs> yeah. What's his name again? Leif Segerstam. 
Yeah, there you go. But anyway, yeah, he has this amazing giant Santa Claus beard and stuff. And, and he's an active composer. He's composed a lot of pieces. But anyway, it's an amazing performance of Scheherazade, too, on YouTube. It's filmed really well. The orchestra sounds fantastic. Um, but this this performance has become famous for uh, <laughs> for what, Shreeder? <laughs> well, so it, it has become famous for a, a, a peculiar um, choice of performance, which I am totally enamored with and I love. Um, it happens, I think, in the in the sort of fourth scene movement whatever yeah um, yeah towards uh, the end almost uh, toward, towards the grand finale it's towards the finale yeah um it's it's in uh i think the the what is the is the fourth one the 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 feast in in baghdad i think uh, so something think like so. that yeah um but um yeah it's a sort of like raucous scene it's it's either i don't know in the music it's depicting either like a sort of party scene revelry feast um, and the conductor, when when you when he gets to that moment, he just um, he just yells out, "Yeah!" <laughs> and the the, and the the orchestra starts chiming in, and you know it. You know they they are. It, it really sounds. I mean, we have to put a clip here. We can't we can't really yeah. recreate the the sound of a of an orchestra um, yapping, but. Um, they are very much, you know, recreating the sound of a feast. Yeah, it's either the feast or... That, or it's either the part where the ship crashes into the rocks. Oh, could it be that? Okay. Story. Yeah, I think it could It could be that. But, yeah, we'll have to put a clip. Because um, it just, it's just out, out of nowhere. It's always, yar, yar. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. <laughs> and it's and the orchestra is all into it. They're yelling stuff, too. Um, the trumpet players, I'm not sure what the flute is playing at that point, but the trumpet players are playing. So, sadly, trumpet yeah. players can't chime in and give the great pirate, you know, sort of yars in there. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's just, when I watched it and when I challenged anybody to watch this, I mean, someone that's familiar with, with the piece, even just a little bit, when you get to that part, you just lose it and start laughing because it's just, because yeah. it's not written in the score. <laughs> yeah. Needless to say. Yeah. But I love it. Yeah. I, 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 yeah, I suppose yeah. we should have made that clarification. This is not in the score. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I love it. I absolutely love it. I, I think it's it's hilarious and, and great. Me too. And I'm all for it, right? I'm like, hell yeah. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, I, I mean I think I think it should become canon. I think that's it should be in new in new editions of Shehrazad, it should be in the score. It should be, you know not necessarily that particular kind of yapping, but um something. Something has to be there. I think it, it, it absolutely cries out for it. And it is really funny. And, you know, you, you crack up when you hear it. Not, you're not laughing at them. You're, you're laughing with them um, or near yeah. them or something. But, um, you know, it's, yeah. this, it's this sort of call to not take music so seriously. Um, yeah. No. And a piece like Scheherazade could use that, right? This exactly. isn't a, a, you know... A Bach mass or something, right? Yeah, <laughs> right. No, no, no. But a piece of like programmatic music that's telling a, a story of an epic tale, right? Yeah, it, it should be done with a bit of fun. Exactly. <laughs> right. Um, and I challenge people who are playing in an orchestra who are doing a performance of this. I challenge to ask the conductor 
if we can yarp and yell when we get to that part. And if the conductor says no, when the performance comes. <laughs> Show them who's boss. You know, one of you is making noise and it isn't the conductor. Yeah, it's funny. Conductors will say how, I mean, they have all the power in rehearsal, but come the performance, <laughs> they're just out there. Yeah. They're out there in everyone's sight and they most of it is beyond their control. <laughs> yeah. No, but it's funny now, this moment towards the end of Scheherazade when they do all this yelling in this performance, I can't hear a performance or a recording of Scheherazade now without, when it, when it gets that part, I'm like waiting for, for the yelling. And like, and I even start yelling to myself. I probably look crazy if I'm just listening to Scheherazade on a walk, which I, I, I say Scheherazade is great walking music or if you're on a run or something. Oh, it's it's epic. It's great to be out and about and yeah. listen to Scheherazade. And it was like the rock and roll of classical music, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> like but um, but yeah, when that part comes, I'm just like, uh, I, I'm just yearning for some pirates crashing to the rocks or like taking over a ship and yelling. And yeah, it sounds incomplete now without it. Absolutely. If if there are any conductors listening and you have Scheherazade lined up for any upcoming performances, you know, consider this. Yeah, the audience uh, will love it. it. I promise you that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if nothing else, it's good YouTube fodder. I mean, if you go to this video, <laughs> the the comments are just loaded with this, with talk of the, the yarping, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's, there's nothing else being talked about. And, um, you know, again, like, the, this orchestra is, is wonderful, the, 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 the Sinfonica di Galicia. But yeah. they're not well-known. And... Mm-hmm. Um, in another universe, when the in another universe in which the yarping didn't happen, um, if I just type in Scheherazade into YouTube, there's no universe in which the the um, the Sinfonica di Galicia's recording is top of that list. You know, as it is, it is because I think it has been made very very <laughs> famous by this yarping, and you know, obviously people love it. There are 2.8 thousand comments, not just views. <laughs> comments this this is this kind of thing is unheard of for classical music um and they're all basically about the yarping so what i'm trying to say is do it for the clicks if nothing else do it for the clicks <laughs> no uh, it's great it's great and and he's up there with the giant beard on a chair <laughs> yeah. conducting the orchestra it he just looks like a pirate himself this it's great content it's great content yeah, yeah so so that's your hair is on. <laughs> I would love to see Mahler doing do, doing the yarping, you know, in his performance. Um, oh, in, in, I in, in this matinee with um, with the uh, what what is the orchestra? Oh yeah, the the Philharmonics. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That would be great in the in in, the, in this matinee, you know, performance on Sunday. You know, people yeah. are just back from from church and they hear a bunch <laughs> of pirates at the Philharmonic. <laughs> yeah, I mean. You know, I, I wonder if we uncover Gustav Mahler's score for Scheherazade with the annotations and notes, if we see any, any yelling marked. Yeah. <laughs> no, seriously. So, yeah, anyway, I mean, I, I do think we're going to have to do a Mahler episode at some point. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and a Bernstein episode. And <laughs> Did, didn't, more. I could be totally wrong on this, but didn't Bernstein almost sleep with Mahler's wife? Wait, seriously? Yeah, I mean, yeah. so so Mahler's wife, um, Alma Mahler, she was a she was a um, socialite essentially. She was she was famous oh. for being famous. I, I might be giving her not enough credit, but she was she was very famous as a sort of socialite and um, and 
she would, I think the rumor is that she would sort of sleep around and Molly was understandably very um, angst-ridden by this fact about mm. his beloved Alma. Interesting. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of a Kanye West scenario, you know. Uh, <laughs> that's what you get for marrying Kim Kardashian. But, um, yeah. <laughs> but um, so, so, so Alma was a, was a sort of famous seductress and, and she outlived okay. Mahler quite a bit. And I think oh, I think there's a story about how she came onto a young Bernstein, and they may have had an affair. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, Bernstein was handsome. I can't blame her. No, yeah. Um, he was a handsome dude. He, he was handsome. You can't blame her. And, um, you know, she was old, but I'm sure she had a certain charm. And how many people get to say that they slept with Molly's wife? Alma, <laughs> <laughs> tell us, all modern women are jealous. Which of your magical wands got you Gustav and Walter and Franz? The first one she married was Mahler, whose buddies all knew him as Gustav. And each time he saw her, he'd holler, Ach, that is the Fräulein I must have. Their marriage, however, was murder. He'd scream to the heavens above, I'm writing das Lied von der Erde. And she only wants to make love. Alma, tell